back in Philadelphia where I grew up and my older brother is like a big fan of the podcast and you know what he said to me? He said, I really, really like the guy, Alex. Wow. Hmm. He didn't come up, Troy. How does that make you feel, Troy? I'm pro you, Alex. I'm up with Alex. I'm happy if you're happy, Alex. <laughs> so you've always been supportive. I might be the Beyonce of this Destiny's Child. That's the problem. I got some feedback on the Substack episode, and it was from Alan Walk. Alan, thank you for writing any text to me. He said, just listen to your People versus Algorithms podcast. As for Substacker versus Blogger, there is some nuance. Substacker has come to mean, and this is a quote, actual journalist who is out of work and trying to make it on their own. While blogger meant, quote, person with no journalism background who somehow now thinks they're a journalist. And he, he meant Thank this you for as that. Who, what, what's his he meant that as a compliment. Alan yeah. Wolf. I appreciate <laughs> you, that. Alan. Yeah, I was like, good. well, gee, thanks. And he said, no, I meant it as a compliment. So I'll take it as, as it was meant. So you're an unemployed journalist. <laughs> Basically, it's, no, 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 don't worry about it. You're just like an unemployed journalist. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. I mean, that's how I see you. So it tracks. <laughs> okay. No, we'll get into this episode. I'm a small business owner. Every time there's three characters in a piece of content or a narrative, there's always going to be people that like and see themselves in the characters that like different characters. So I'm glad Alex has people that appreciate his sort of Eurocentric view and, and uh, sort of deep liberal grounding. I think that's, that's cool. All right, we're going to get into all of that this week. Oh boy, yeah. And we're all going to assume like our roles. I'm on the pitchfork. Yeah, burn decided. it all down. Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a conversation about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy. I write the Rebooting newsletter and host the Rebooting podcast. Each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. This week, we're discussing the big business story of the week, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. One of the reasons I'm drawn to this story, like the previous implosion at FTX, is how these events were previously simple news stories of utmost importance to those directly affected, and then with cascading relevance for the larger impact they will have on the economy and society. But now I find these news events serve more as prompts for the discussions that we have. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank immediately led to the formation of narratives. For those predisposed to view Silicon Valley with skepticism, and I am probably one of them, although pretty mildly. The narrative revolves around poor risk management and the utter hypocrisy and self-interested fear-mongering we saw among a small group of very loud investors who spend far too much time on Twitter. Journalists are most moved not by political affiliation, but always by hypocrisy. Now for others, the narrative revolves around the media and its supposed vendetta against the tech industry. Maybe motivated by jealousy, maybe motivated by the media's loss of prestige and power at the hands of tech, or maybe even it's just basically that there's been incredibly negative impact of many Silicon Valley innovations on the news business. Now, politicians, meanwhile, they are experts at shaping narratives. This is what they do. And immediately, those on the left saw the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank as yet another example of the disastrous deregulation that's happened over a generation. While those on the right, well, they're pinning this all on what else? Wokeness. This week, 
Troy, Alex, and I discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank from our own narrative perspectives. As always, I welcome your feedback. My email is brian at therebooting.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, and I hope you do, please recommend it to others and leave us a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Thanks in particular to Anuj Abrol, who DM'd me recently to say that he enjoys both the Rebooting Show and this podcast. And he also added, the media expertise in a group chat feel is an amazing format. Thank you, Anuj, and I'm glad that you appreciate the conversational format that is intentional. So here, without further ado, is our conversation. I think we have to start with Silicon Valley Bank. Troy, I know you're reticent about this, but I think it's going to go swimmingly. Because this was the, the big story. I mean, this was a bank that collapsed late last week, and it was just amazing. It started the week as having $26 billion to market cap, and it ended the week under receivership. I mean, talk about a bad week. And it was a classic bank run. I think a lot of times these financial crises are almost like impossible to unpack. I was back home with my parents. They understood exactly what went on. I think I pretty much understand what went on. Some people made some bad bets, you know, they borrowed short and they they loaned long and they got caught in between because they assumed that the risk that basically didn't exist in a zero interest rate era be that way in perpetuity. And I think it's interesting time for this because when this happened this weekend, all the regular things came out, tech versus media, tech versus regulation, the utter hypocrisy of venture capitalists. And I want to talk about that, all of it, because I think it's an interesting time. And you could argue this is a bit of an end of an era. It's an end of a long era of tech expansion. Things are going to get a lot harder. The people who claim that they were like all into risk, they were very into risk when it basically didn't exist. When everything's up and to the right, risk is very, very different than it's going to be going forward. And so just like the rest of us who have to deal with risk, now everyone's going to have to deal with risk. And I'm very excited for this. Luckily, the government stepped in. The government stepped in. I, I've been hearing from a lot of people who are self-appointed spokespeople of Silicon Valley broadly, who have been railing against government, who have been railing against regulations, and guess what they were spending this weekend doing? They were asking the government to help them out. So I'm hopeful, when I trust it will happen, that this will put away all this idea that there's no need for government and institutions and that regulations have a, a place to save capitalists from themselves. So that's my, my point of view where I'm coming from. What, what did you learn from this saga, Troy? I feel like you're a parent. You're asking me a hard question. One of the things that I think is interesting, albeit tangential to what you're saying, is the inordinate amount of influence of, I don't know what the category, creator media, influencer media, institutional media in shaping the dialogue around this. Say what you want about the all-in guys, but I think their podcast is immensely influential. I'm not saying that there's a straight line to be drawn from them going on about the consequences of the bank failure and the legislative response to it on their podcast, which was released on Saturday. It is listened to by a very broad and deep audience. And then I think that that conversation extends to Twitter, where Sachs holds court, where Jason does his Jason thing. I found it just kind of shocking that actually I was having a real media experience last night where I was dying to watch the finale of The Last of Us. It happened to overlap with the Oscars, which had some good moments. So I was kind of toggling between the two. But at the same time, Jason had 5,000 people in a Twitter chat talking about exactly this. It's interesting to see something of such 
of significance and how a small group of people in Silicon Valley really shaped the policy response. I love that. It's also a small group of people who caused this problem. Venture capitalists created this mess. If they didn't panic, it never would have happened. First of all, why we're talking about this, I think it's a media story. And I find it interesting, first of all, how excited people were in the media about a bunch of people losing their money, especially because they were tech businesses. Not true. Uh, I, I think I think I think there was a lot of that. Not true. I think there was a lot of that. You you're you're buying all the propaganda. Well, no, I'm not that. buying. I'm not buying. No, the he's propa- saying. He, I think he, he's probably right. There was there was some sort of media Schadenfreude for sure. It frustrates me all the time about a lot of stuff that happens in the discourse. Is that people and businesses get bucketed into these broad strokes? Like the know, media, you mean? Well, like the media. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree. But it's not like the media doesn't do it with everyone else. It, so but it's funny. A human it's, condition. But since we're talking about tech, I find it. Funny funny how, how tech can be seen both as you know woke leftists and out of touch hyper capitalist libertarian you know they can't be both welcome to the media we're like inconsequential but then we're also part of the quote right. unquote the establishment against billionaires somebody writing for Huffington Post is more powerful than someone worth that. like two billion dollars I defend the media against these attacks but I think the problem is we have terrible spokespeople for technology as maybe yes. we do for media and everybody sees this like oh yeah Peter Thiel's gonna get hurt Peter Thiel's not going to get hurt. The people that were going to get hurt were the people I was talking to over the weekend that had 10, 5, 15 employees, of which there were thousands in this thing. And we could say, well, it's not going to impact the economy much, but it's also SVB as a business was relatively well put together. There was a bank run because as investors saw the tides turn, they did the right thing by telling the small companies to take their money out because not acting would have been not, not professional at this stage. I have no love for VCs or billionaires, man. It's just, I felt that this time, there's such a tension. This was natural disaster, not caused by a small group of venture capitalists. We're getting played by folks like our all-in friends and folks in kind of the fringe edges of the media. It's making it like us versus them. While I think media media is intricately linked to tech, there was a ton of schadenfreude, a ton of people waiting like, oh yeah, let's let it all burn. I felt was a little a little telling that groups that didn't want to be generalized in media were also quick to generalize all of tech. And I'm not for a bailout. I think that banks should be shut down. I think it's good to separate out quote unquote tech and people building businesses versus venture capitalists who are, they're basically real estate agents as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the real estate agents don't own the properties that they front. And just like the venture capitalists, they don't have the money. It's other people's money that they play with. That's why they love a risk-free year. They get a piece of the upside. There's no upside. They've got management fees. There's a reason that they were organizing this on the way up to the gondola, the gondola up the mountain. Do you see that one? No. VC <laughs> so, wasn't like available because he was in the gondola. The best analogy to a real estate agent is the investment banker because they're the ones that sell fancy, complicated assets and they package them up. A good venture capitalist plays a really important role in capital allocation. They make their money from carry. They don't make their money from the 2% fees that they take. But it's good to, I think, for the audience to, to mm-hmm. deconstruct why you think that this is a crisis that runs back to the door of venture capital. This is the way I understand Silicon Valley Bank. Because I can remember in early days of Digiday, I used to think, wow, our biggest risk factor is the fact that half our money comes from Silicon Valley Bank. Because every single, the client base that existed at the company at the time, I don't know now, was mostly venture-funded advertising technology firms. All of them happened to keep their money in one bank, which was strange. I was like, wow, that's why one bank? I didn't really understand it. I think what's come out is like pretty clear that venture capitalists kept their money in these banks and they had 
and sometimes required their portfolio companies to keep their money in this bank. And the bank was like very, quote unquote, startup friendly, did things like offered very nice mortgage deals that I don't get as a small business owner, but they got because they were venture capital funded. No, they had a service offering tuned to the needs of technology and early stage companies, including things like venture loans that supported growth. By the way, it's really important. You were asking. in any industry. Okay, Okay. great. So, like, I've seen Sam Altman, who just closed like a $10 billion round, who was talking about the Farm Bureau stuff. I remember you were bringing that up. The way I understand what happened was Silicon Valley Bank made a bad bet. They made a good bet for when it was a basically a risk-free era and they decided to take long-term securities. Obviously, with bank deposits, we don't talk about it a lot, but you're loaning money to a bank that's going to then take it and use it for things like mortgages and stuff. And that's incredibly just a normal banking activity. Banking should be boring. It should be a boring business. Now, instead of having any short-term securities, because you might need the money because it's not people come and get it, they decided to, basically because greed, they decided to try to get better yield. So they went into long-term securities that ended up being a really bad bet when interest rates started rising. Now, there's a group of people who say that you couldn't see that interest rates were going to rise in 2022. Now, I am not a macroeconomist. I was living in Miami, Florida at the time, and I saw a price of a fish sandwich going up 35%. It was pretty clear that inflation was happening. It was pretty clear. The idea that interest rates were always going to be at zero was idiotic. When they got caught with their pants down on this trade, Venture capitalists then all decided to take their money out and tank the bank that they built. They screwed over their own portfolio companies who couldn't get their money out because they panicked. What am I missing? First of all, we're not a finance podcast, so I don't know if I ran a bank, if I would have noticed all these things. Hindsight is 2020. I also want to make it clear that I'm not... (laughs) (laughs) Well, the only thing I would take from that is don't run a bank, Alex. Yeah, don't Um, run a bank. I shouldn't run anything that involves money. But the topic... Except your family office. But the topic for me is more SVB, whether it was well run or badly run. That's one thing. It doesn't exist. I think we can now say it was badly run. The issue and what this exposes again is that we like label people and put them into these giant monoliths. If they don't like Peter Thiel, they see Peter Thiel as the face of all VCs or Saks or whoever it is and the face of tech, therefore. If you're a VC and you have a few portfolio companies, you're not fucking them over by telling them, take your money out if you see something's about to go bad. It is the correct thing thing to do if you have information. That's what creates a run on the bank. Oftentimes, a run on the bank is created by a lot of people doing the right thing, which is trying to pull your money out of a failing system. The thing to me that is surfacing, though, is this kind of generalization that the venture capital system is a bad system that hasn't created all these incredible businesses and innovation. And it's driving really America's kind of number one position in the technology field. And I say that as a European. I got to make sure that I clarify this. I find it kind of really cringy when people talk about capital allocation as this art or when I listen to All In and how these folks are all talking like they're geniuses even though that you just need one Facebook and 99 failures to do really well as a VC. There's no love lost there. The narrative, the press, it felt a little bit to me sitting on this side, ah, now it's our time to dish it out. Now it's our time. I had to come in and punch them while they're down. I literally heard things like, yeah, even the name Silicon Valley Bank is annoying. I'm so happy that <laughs> that was the narrative. I was like, come on, guys. Nobody's looking good here. Nobody. Nobody. I don't know how you can't see it as a policy failure where the mismatch of assets and liabilities and the requirement that the long-term investments are not marked to market, so the exposures are not 
apparent. The exposure is not apparent. Is a problem. Good, well-meaning people that had three to five to ten to twenty million dollars at SVB that were running their business off of it, that are making payroll, that are buying product. Those people invest. They put their money in a bank. Yeah, they didn't evaluate the yeah. risks of that bank. But we don't do that when we put money in an institution like that. So I think it. We might need to now. We might now, need to. Brian. It strikes me that your argument is that VCs are douchebags. They're douchebags because they didn't support this institution that was such a cornerstone of their world and provided them with good service for a long time. When the chips were down, they all bailed on them and it caused a bank run and bad on them. The other argument I think you're making is that... that, That's the argument. I think that's a pretty good argument. The other one is that all these guys that are sort of libertarian, that criticize all types of government regulation and student loan relief... was, was lobbying against being regulated in such a way that would have made it subject to, you know, we, we don't want bank. Oh, I'm, I'm, I don't happen. think I'm defending the executives at Silicon Valley Bank at all. No, I, think that, the, no, I don't think that they're easy to blame for this. You are pointing out the hypocrisy of those that rally against government involvement in any part of the economy now want to, wanting their support. Because it's their money and their company's money. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting when Friedberg, even on the All In podcast, who's a known libertarian, who is actually my favorite kind of person on the podcast. Well, I mean, I, I think at least he's intellectually honest. He even said, I hate to say this, but the government has to step in or something to that effect. But Brian, I think just so we can separate this, there's mm-hmm. the bank. There's a lot of blame to go around in the bank. There's that. Then there are these individuals who have turned around, who have kind of done the mental gymnastics to start blaming the government. The same way when FTX went down, the first things to blame was the lack of reg- the lack of regulation and the media for not covering it properly. I agree. There's a bit of a revenge angle that's coming from that narrative. And I agree that there's a lot of individuals who have shown to be able to do a full fucking U-turn the second things turn. But just to be like a little bit more nuanced on the Silicon Valley Bank, even if you looked at the numbers, knowing about how the financial work, a lot of people have told me that bank looked safe. It was incredibly well run. The distribution of its assets looked pretty good on paper. There was nothing that looked wrong. That idea that VCs were forcing investment to bank there is actually, I cannot find proof of that. It is that it was a bank that was tailored for startups and VCs. Yeah, Therefore, that was people also part ended of up meetings. using it. Sure, sure. I guess a, a lot of things are unforeseen. But again and again, we come back to these things where there are things that should have been seen and weren't seen by the people who keep telling us how smart they are. We're in this era, and I think that's why there's a lack of trust in a lot of institutions, in that there are a lot of people who have held themselves off to, out to be like all-knowing and then proved to be just as failable as the rest of us. And then when it happens, Happens, there tends to be like not a lot of accountability. I am with you. When the FTX debacle happened, I was quick to jump in and say blaming the media or the government for this seems like a little much of a stretch. But I do think that in a Silicon Valley bank, there is definitely a policy issue. There's definitely an issue about the narrative that wasn't uncovered by the media around these kind of medium-sized banks being potentially more brittle than we thought they were. The VCs are definitely potentially to blame. And then there's a few individuals that when this shit started going down, didn't look so good. I do want to talk about this idea that there's a lot of punching down happening now or punching while people are down because people see tech as this thing that deserves 
to be punished. And I see that. It's, yeah. it's everywhere. But do you understand? It is a similar behavior than people seeing media, in quotes, deserving to be punished for something. For media has been like unpopular. And the reason that it's painted as a enemy by a lot of these loudmouth, whatever you want to call them, individuals, we can't call them tech or VC, whatever, these loudmouth individuals, is because it's politically expedient. Nobody is going to, you've got a ready-made market for that. And we'll see how this plays out politically because I'm fascinated to see how this, don't call it a bailout, indirect bailout, is going to be handled. Because like we keep hearing, at least I keep hearing that it's the media, the media, the media. Well, now tech is a really, really important industry. They keep telling us how important they are. We are going to see now in the regular political realm how the regular people, Forget about the media, react to this quote unquote backstop. Now, I understand it's for companies that had nothing to do with this. I personally have the rebooting LLC's money in Citibank. Unfortunately, it's under $250,000, so it is like FDIC approved, but I'd like it to be above if anyone wants to contact me for sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way every every podcast... Every episode. Every episode. I want to be at risk of that, and I'm just going to open up different bank accounts because it's fine. But Brian, here's maybe what I'm trying to get to. There's this saying like, hurt people hurt people, and I get that the media's been bashed, and I I get that there are specific characters in but the this media is that are. Media. Wait, hang on, hang on. That are very powerful that have been bashing the media. And it seems to me like now the media narrative should take a higher ground. And rather than say, haha, now it's happening to you, let's all pile in, just telling the real story of what's happening. Because let me tell you, those billionaire VCs, those big tech companies like Google and Facebook, they're not impacted by this. They're going to be fine. They're going well, to be first fine. First of all, everyone is going to be fine. So uh, all the, oh, well, I mean, the yelling now, fire, the yelling fire in a theater that we saw this weekend. But hysteria. are you just talking about Jason? Because Calacanis, if I everyone, always got to, did he weep? I hope. I, saw I, he, hope. I heard he weep. What? Did he weep? I don't fucking care, man. I fucking swear. <laughs> if this guy becomes the voice for tech, so, I might leave the industry. He'd like to be the voice for media too, I guess. He's the new media. The companies that were unable to get, and it, that was very stressful. It was also, honestly, like it was obviously always going to get sorted out. The FDIC was always going to step in. I don't even think that's the story anymore. I think the story is like that we're continuing this trend down, separating people into groups. And when everybody sees tech, they see tech bros and Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. And when everybody looks at media, they either blame them for attacking Trump too much or for allowing Trump to happen. Here's my thing. This is like a peace offering. Why doesn't tech and media get together and start normalizing the narrative? Because the thing that I noticed is that you started getting into really? it. Man. Really? That's your, that's your well, peace that, offering? That's what you're bringing? Come on, Alex. Yeah. It's so stupid. This is such a well, big yeah, conversation. Like, it's like, oh, tech is bad. The headlines, oh, looks like some people are going to lose their Teslas. Fuck off. That's kind of Is that a real headline? It might have been a tweet. I will say this. like A lot of the stuff was overblown. <laughs> I'm not a reporter. I don't need okay, to good. share facts. This is good. This is the new media. <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like Over this weekend, and maybe this is me being a cynical journalist. I don't think I'm anti-technology, but like whatever. I loved how everyone changed clothes. Anyone who's a libertarian, all of a sudden, went over. It's like, the government needs to step in. And then you had everyone, oh, yeah. people who had their money trapped in. And again, I do have a... This is not 
any of the people we know brian is anti-small business i'm not this is a great i like joke as like the small business owner it's this is what they did they basically changed clothes from the on, hashtag entrepreneur to like hashtag small business owner and there was this one it was being promoted by a lot of these mm-hmm. individuals mm-hmm. this woman who has a 15 person company she said i'm a mom of four in ohio i drive a honda odyssey minivan i'm just trying to make payroll and stuff it's very sympathetic i was like yeah that is true and then i clicked on her profile and it had at mckinsey so like everyone becomes a small business owner because the small business owner is the patron saint of american capitalism you can't say anything bad about them there weren't there there's were a never bigger, there's a bigger there's a bigger issue nobody there were never there were never going to be food but lines. it's what alex there were never was saying food lines in, there is in, something that's going to happen that is bubbling up right now and i think it was reflected in a very thoughtful article article written by Ezra Klein in the New York Times, an opinion piece this weekend. We are fascinated by technology. We are smitten by innovation. We turn the leaders of those companies into heroes. It's not a new thing. It's not about tech. It's about capitalism and the American way and exploring the frontiers of everything. And it's a fundamental part of who Americans are and who we are in terms of people that make things, that innovate, that do new things. And suddenly technology or the next frontier of technology, it's incomprehensible. What's starting to happen is we can't map the inputs to the outputs. We know that when we put something into a model and it gives us back something that is coherent and looks like intelligence and all that, that's cool. And we're incredibly smitten by it. And we go after it without thinking of any of the broader consequences of it. But right now what's happening, and Ezra makes this point about spending time with AI researchers in in Silicon Valley, that they're like, it's a very unusual time because people are are starting to play with technology that they don't really understand what it's going to do. And there was this survey done that was interesting where 10% of experts in the field thought that the consequence of this technology could be kind of catastrophic. That's why I wanted to talk about risk, because I actually have this in my piece that I'm writing for tomorrow. It's a bit of a screed, as you can tell. The problem is the lack of trust when it comes to risk management, because this is a bank thing. It's finance. It's like whatever. But where tech has moved, and I'm sorry, I have to group this thing, is into these areas that are incredibly important to society. They're not just laying down like fiber anymore. We saw this with not really understanding the risks of connecting the world. That wasn't thought through because you move fast and break things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it comes to AI, a 10% risk of catastrophic to humanity. I saw another survey that the majority of people right now do not think AI is worth it. They think that the risks outweigh the upsides. For the next, I think GPT-4 is supposed to come out tomorrow, an interesting time for it to come out because the trust levels, I think, and maybe it's the quote unquote media, I don't think so, are lower than they've been in a long time for what is coming out of quote unquote Silicon Valley. And like this is narratives and narratives are very important. If there's a 10% risk of ruining humanity, I think a normal person would be like, hmm, maybe pump the brakes on it. I'm not sure how these statistics work. I want us to be very cautious with this stuff, but there was probably a a 10% risk of electricity ruining humanity. I don't know how we do these calculations. I think that there's a couple of things happening. And one of them is definitely that a new technology has arisen very quickly. That is, I think in our culture, the beginning of the end for many stories. It's Terminator, it's Skynet. It feels like the preamble to one of the dystopian stories 
perspective around AI. So it's bound to make people uncomfortable. Whether there's some truth to it or not, I think that definitely doesn't help. On top of that, I actually think technology companies in the last 10 years haven't done a bunch of big leaps until this one. They've really worked on really stupid, boring shit that didn't have a ton of impact. And a lot of the business that are huge today aren't entirely new businesses, but kind of rehashing of similar things or specific interfaces that do something different like TikTok. But we've seen cultural changes, like everything's moved to streaming, yada, yada. I, I also think that they're just not to blame the media, but to kind of make a point about the media. This has been a real change, Alex. But, but let's like not call the media. I mean, I don't love the It's good the name. when a character is like you start to see the photos of the character. There's a contentious relationship between technology and the technology press, let's call it that, that has just become, I think, pretty unproductive. And it's hard for me because I listen to a lot of podcasts and there's the one with Kara and, and Scott Galloway, the, Pivot? what is it called? A Pivot, yeah. That podcast has become nearly like an hour of people saying how bad tech is and apparently Kara was in every room telling every tech founder that they shouldn't do the bad thing that they were about to do. <laughs> and I find that's like kind of a recurring theme in a lot of technology press now that it's just that trust is gone and a lot of tech is to blame for that. But I wonder what happens when the driver of innovation and technology, which is held in such contempt by the media and by the population, does that mean we slow down? Does yeah. that mean it just gets more regulated? Yep. But you know who's not slowing down? Oh no, here comes China. If, what, you start Start with the uh, small business owner. No, I was going to say go Canada. Canada is our biggest. Canada. We got to. What, yeah. what are you going to do? Put the technology back in the bag? I think this is part of the evolution. What is going on right now? What is coming out of the technology industry? And what really happened? These are societally important stories. They said, is it a systemically important whatever entity? I've been learning all these like different finance things just over the weekend so I can act like I'm an expert. But um, it's probably not been very effective. Tech is systemically important right now. It's just systemically important to our economy and systemically important to society. And with that comes things like responsibility, accountability, and yes, Absolutely. regulation. Absolutely. Go figure. Guess what? The pharmaceutical industry, extremely regulated. We have regulated industries. What is going to be interesting is how that happens because, and this is where I go back to this, you know, these unfortunate libertarian clowns who right or wrong, and maybe it's the media's fault or self-appointed spokespeople, that doesn't work. The regulation is going to happen. And I understand how regulation ends up favoring the largest companies and all this other stuff. But the stuff that the technology industry is working on is too important. It's not a social app. And so inevitably, there are going to be giant societal implications for this. And how democratic societies decide on that is through things like regulation and legislation. So I hope coming out of this, that certain quarters of quote-unquote tech or whatever, or individuals and stuff, grow up and grow out of this libertarian stuff that all 15-year-old boys are attracted yeah, to. It's a really, really adults. tough question. I want to kind of pick it apart for a second because I agree with some of the points you're making around technology becoming so consequential that we really need third party to think through how we manage that innovation and the effects of it. It's that as there's become, this is my point a minute ago, and this isn't even close to the density of AI, but the more dense and complex the issues get, the less faith I have in our regulatory apparatus. And the best example for me is, look, I think that it wasn't just social apps and shit. Actually, social apps and shit had a very profound effect on the structure of media. Now, there's two sides on that. 
This podcast is enabled by social apps and shit. That's why we're able to do this. And that's why we have content abundance, quite frankly. And that's why we have the deteriorated influence of institutional media brands. Now, you can say that's a good thing. It was better when, you know, media companies had way more stability and all of that stuff. Or you could say we've innovated in a way that was entirely unpredictable to a new state where lots more people have a point of view, whether it's Jason Calcanis or David Sachs or Scott Galloway or Troy Young or Alex or whoever. And I think that for the most part, it's probably a pretty good outcome. But then when I look at what regulation did, and they stumbled around online advertising. The IAB was incapable pretty much as a quasi kind of government organization or an industry trade group of structuring anything other than the shape of banners. It's 728 by whatever. When you look at GDPR, what a failure. What an utter failure. All we have done is add buttons to websites all over the world with absolutely no impact, no additional safety for the consumer, no comprehension from the consumer, no, certainly not better for anybody's business or for the economy. All it did is it created a new tier of middlemen that were extracting value in the middle of the media industry by helping you manage this fucked up situation. And so saying regulation is a wonderful thing. I just don't know how that's practical. Nobody likes regulation. Ralph Nader rose to fame. Think about him as a leftist. And he was against. He was the seatbelt guy. I don't think that's true. I think regulation is one of those things that when you ask people at a high level, most people can agree. My challenge with regulation right now is that I feel that the discourse is not going to lead to any good regulation. Because I think the way people are talking about this stuff is, A, they don't understand it. The government's not able to put something cogent together. And yes, the narrative in the press is not particularly intelligent most of the time. Because we keep talking about fucking AI is falling in love or how it's going to ruin science fiction writing competitions or whatever that is. I don't think we truly understand. And so to Troy's point, yes, a, a perfect regulation would be great, but it's also there hasn't been a decent track record of it. I, I'm just struggling what perfect regulation means. There's no perfect regulation. Name, yeah. We don't give, even give me one. What the financial does, industry hates the regulations that it has. The pharmaceutical industry hates the regulations it has. The transportation industry hates the regulations they have. Every industry that is regulated hates the regulation. I mean, and usually then, by the way, in the background, they're doing regulatory capture. I think that part of the challenge with technology regulation, specifically internet regulation, regulation works much better when it's localized. When you're saying, oh, this is how we treat meat. So therefore, meat that comes into Europe needs to be treated like this, otherwise we won't buy it. You know what I mean? The, The problem with things like the internet is that it's so fast moving and amorphous and so global that regulating this stuff often breaks down into something that doesn't work like GDPR, because people are trying to figure out a system that can be distributed across the internet. So that's part of the issue with regulation. I don't want to maybe conflate regulation with risk-taking. I think there's like a behavior of risk-taking that we're maybe kind of applying to. We don't want somebody like Facebook that kind of plays fast and loose with teenage suicide to control AI. And I totally agree with that. I'm also worried about it. But the question is, what do you do about it? And I think that the media, because this is also a podcast about media, has some responsibility in highlighting these things in a way that isn't... Do you know how many Terminator 
thumbnails I'm seeing on news articles talking about AI. I don't think the discourse has been really intelligent. I think the whole SVB thing has shown that maybe there's just too much contention between these groups for there to be an intelligent discourse. To go back to Troy's earlier point, the problems at SVB or the risks were actually highlighted by, there was a newsletter writing about this a couple months ago, so kudos to the newsletters. At least it wasn't a blog. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good thing, because despite people hating on the media, regulation is not generally how problems are found. Short sellers have a place in this, all sorts of different people with different incentives to make the system somewhat better. To me, I'm just thinking of a overall shift in the position of where the technology industry has been heretofore. Right. Obviously, everyone likes... Go ahead. I think talking about regulation at a thousand foot level is not particularly useful. Alex made a really good point that what's more important, I think, around AI is that it is not controlled by a small group of people than that regulation often kind of silos it to organizations that can navigate regulation. It's really important that things like Stability AI are putting AI in the hands of all kinds of people to think about its consequences, to play with it, to look at new applications, even if some of those people are bad people. I sort of have faith that we will do what we always do, which is through a lot of tense, in many cases, tense back and forth and dialogue, we will kind of figure out our way through this. And oh, 100%. it's just, now we're just living in the I don't know in, how I you know, became like, like pro regulation, but okay. I don't want to back you into a corner on anything like that, Brian. I just think that right now, the thing that we're dealing with is just that the advancement is so exponential. And it's, like I said, there's a disconnect between it's really hard with any modern system to see inputs and outputs and really understand the processing that's in the middle. And so we're living in a time where I fear what's going to happen is it kind of happened when post-Obama, when everybody was like anti-Wall Street and where it was like they were to blame and and you could argue that that's true. I fear that we're moving into the same, we're just replacing the bad actor, which is tech, that a lot of people that don't live in, it's kind of like everything's like high school. And so what's happened is the nerds, the people that understand, particularly the self-righteous nerds, now have an insane amount of authority and power. And we are living through a period. No, no, no. No, 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 I agree. I, I, I wrote something very similar. That's why I think I think we actually are more in agreement because like there's a lot of people in quote unquote the media or maybe just in general who want to shove them back in lockers. So this right, I think excuse. like guys that wear fur outfits and charge with horns in their helmets and charge the Capitol <laughs> are people really reacting to feeling powerless and out of control and not understanding how they're going to succeed in this really complex world that we're building. And that's the problem. But I think the point I was trying to make was that tech has reached maturation point where these are important conversations and there needs to be a realization and it doesn't mean regulation that these have societal implications and that there is a responsibility there it, it's, but Look, it's a, with I, great I agree power with you, comes I great think, responsibility what is it no, spider-man like, I, I know mean, but that's just the reality the thing is that i don't know if we're going to get anywhere useful and once again this to me the svb stuff was more like a highlight of where we are in society oh, yeah. the way innovation usually works is a little bit like you're going down a road and you're going to hit obstacles which are like new inventions or whatever and those obstacles are fraught with danger and potential you can't drive around it and you definitely can't drive backwards we've just hit 
some potential new obstacle with AI. What we do with it is not going to, I don't think the outcome is going to be better if we start saying, well, that's tech's responsibility, tech's been playing fast and loose, and we cannot trust, trust tech because tech isn't a thing. The same way, I think it's a societal issue that we need to have a conversation around at a societal level as to how this impacts jobs, as to how this impacts education. Why should schools ban something like that? It's like banning yeah. calculators. Because the people we represent in this podcast are really kind of like tech and media. My hope, my hope is that tech and media starts working together a little bit better to not only communicate what's going on in a way that is mature, but also help forge, you know, how we apply these technologies. I lost confidence over the weekend just seeing how everybody behaved. I don't think everybody, anybody, anybody that, that has some authority, whether it's the media, the tech, the all-in folks, the people that were libertarian until 48 hours ago, all of these folks, everybody looks, everybody looks pretty terrible. And 99% of the rest of the population is looking at us and say, you're fucking guys like controlling the thing that could either like turn this society into Star Trek or into Terminator 2. And I don't know. I think that's bad for all of us. Yeah. How do societies have conversations about these things? Through media, society. man. No, Through how media. do democratic societies have, have these fruitful conversations? Imperfect, but fruitful. I don't know, Twitter, I guess. No, it doesn't <laughs> seem like that works. Uh, Twitter's gotten so bad. I think Twitter yeah. just... Yeah. I think they're us it's usually done through politics, which is where power gets mm -hmm. exercised. And I think we saw mm -hmm. that over the weekend. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting because I think this is just the new realm that the role the technology plays in society and culture. It's the it's what I say before this podcast. And it's gonna require a lot more of these conversations. To me, you know, that's just the reality of it. Yeah, this one is fascinating. It's a recognition of technology's like pivotal role. You think about all the boxes that are checked here as you highlight why this is such an important issue from financial regulatory environment to to small business to policy around AI and its creeping importance to everything that we do as a society and culture to global power positions. Like all of these things are connected. Yeah. Whereas if you were wound 10 years ago, none of these conversations were even like on the table. Yeah. But I did find it fascinating to see. I wonder how many people that were in policymaking positions were influenced by Twitter broadly, the conversation on Twitter, or a group of people that were very vocal about how this should resolve. You, you seem skeptical, Brian, judging from your. Uh, I, I'm a little skeptical, yeah. I think like most power is still exerted behind closed doors. I don't know if there was any influence there because I would say that the vast majority of people wanted to see this just go down in flames considering what I was reading. And therefore, the more popular option might have been to let that happen or do it but a bit more quietly. But, uh, just to be clear, that's any bailout. I'm sorry, we can't call it a bailout. It's a backstop, an indirect bailout. I mean, the money comes from somewhere, sorry. And it's, it's going to be passed on. Well, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is... The but any bailout is unpopular. It doesn't matter if it's the farmers or the tech people. I don't care, Sam Altman, with your $10 billion funding round. It's just not true. Nobody likes bailouts. Nobody. Right, but there's there's been like over 500 banks that have had 
runs like this that have been shut down and everybody's always gotten their money. However, the narrative's different with this one. It is big and it is and it is Silicon Valley. Did anyone Valley, really but... believe, did either of you guys seriously believe that all these thousand startups were going to go under, that they weren't going to quote unquote get their money? I didn't. It was a true thing that I believe because I was talking to a few people. Number one, I don't think that's the story for me here. Whether we believe it or not, the thing to me is that this whole situation exposed something to me that, that is now clearer is that it seems that the tech press really hates tech. And it's going to be an interesting tension that happens there. Yay, this thing we write about every day is going down in flames. We're so fucking stoked. And I'm generalizing. I appreciate that. The conversations I was having was nearly nobody thought that the money would never arise. But if the money took one, two, three months to come through, they wouldn't make payroll. And these businesses don't have that type of runway. And time's already hard. And they're already trying to find product market fit or whatever that is in, in very tumultuous financial conditions. So it wasn't that the money would be lost. If anything, the big guys had stuff spread around multiple banks that they were going to be fine. It was these small guys that only had $3 million and not having access to like $500,000 over the next two months would be catastrophic. That was the main story I was hearing about from the inside. And sure, maybe somebody worked at McKinsey and maybe that small business owner owns a Tesla. Fine. But it was a it minivan. Business. No, if that's not the, that to me. Why doesn't Tesla probably, make a minivan? They should make one. They should. That's true. They should that's true. true. It just highlighted something to me. We got to well, be what, friends What is again. the tech press? Does that exist? Anymore? I mean, like well, tech crunch? I mean, people who broadly talk about tech, tech podcast, tech yeah. press, tech Twitter. But I think that right? is also your technology. Your technology podcast. Uh, Everyone. Well, that's the whole thing. Tech is a horizontal, not a vertical. And I feel like a lot of this going back to like everyone assumed their positions is going back to a time when there was a technology industry. We use a lot of shorthand just because we're humans and we have to. Technology is across every single industry, every single facet of society, across politics, across borders, across everything, like Troy was saying. And that's a totally different era than had existed. And that's gonna require a whole bunch of different types of conversations because it's not just a story about, oh, we're going to get funding and then build this thing and make a bunch of money and then other people are going to go out and build up a bunch of different things. It is a lot broader. And I think that is a challenge right now. It definitely marks a milestone in change. I have a quote of a really bad take from the Wall Street Journal. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yeah. Are they a tech press? Well... You know. Was there a regulatory failure? Perhaps. SVB was regulated like a bank, but looked more like a money market fund. Then there's this. In its proxy statement, SVB notes that besides 91% of their board being independent and 45% women, they also have one black and one LGBTQ plus and two veterans. I'm not saying 12 white men would have avoided this mess, but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands. <laughs> what uh, the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Are you kidding me? I've it's seen, diversity. That's that. the problem. I've seen a lot of the DEI thing coming out. Can you tell me, Alex, was that, for, for, was that an opinion piece in the journal? I'm sure it must. I mean, I'm I better, better hope it was. <laughs> I'm fairly certain. I'm fairly certain. Or did, 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 did Murdoch text that in? Yeah. <laughs> this is by Andy Kessler, who's an opinion columnist yeah he's uh, yeah, of course. it's important to say yeah. that everyone goes to their battle stations that's just where we are
how can we expect people to trust any of us when this is the fucking discourse, man? I mean, it's opinion or not. It's printed under the Wall Street Journal banner. Look, I feel like in the last few years, anyone who is in this very important industry tangentially or centrally is going to have to get used to messy conversations with lots of different people. And ideally, conversations are about speaking, but they're also about listening. And there's been a lot of talking at people coming from, and I understand it because this industry broadly was in a totally different position than it is now. And there's a bunch of different stakeholders. And the idea of these like septuagenarian or octogenarian lawmakers deciding the future, shaping these markets, gives me pause. So I do want to be very clear there. Yeah. One thing if I you can't use an is- iPad, you can't talk about AI. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of complicated areas. I'm going to be a are- super tech savvy septuagenarian. Oh, I hope to be. I mean, video games are going to be great when I'm older. By the way, one thing one thing to note is that one of the narrative was that this was also the end of crypto because it wasn't showing up as a hedge, but crypto jumped, you know, nearly 10% in last Did it? Yeah. Yeah, but it jumps 5 Well, I like what everyone, everyone basically shapeshifts the thing into whatever their like pet cause is. If your pet, yeah. if your pet cause is, you know, disliking the tech industry, it was pretty, it was a layup. If your pet cause was like disliking, quote unquote, the media, took a little bit of work, but it was fairly easy to dial in. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, if it was about hating like the government, you can blame like, I guess the government for not blowing the whistle on. This. But there's a lot of sh- there's a lot of Schadenfreude as well, which I I felt like with the the crypto crash, I was like, oh, yeah, finally well, I'm validated. And honestly, and, uh, there is, and like also, it's just the reverse of go woke, go broke. What, how yeah, that and, and, and at times of deep uncertainty, Schadenfreude is the currency. It's what yeah. we do. What you give is what you get back. I don't know. To me, it's inevitable. <laughs> wow, perfect bow, wow. bro. Yeah, that's right. Is that bad? Well, yeah, you're uh, you're just bumming all of us out. I didn't want to make it sound like I was uh, putting you in a bucket of all press and all press. I'm not bucket. putting you in the bucket of all tech either, Alex. Great. You're and in- you know I love regulation. I'm European. <laughs> that's what we do. That's our main export. Yeah, Alex loves regulation. You hate GDPR. You've gone after GDPR a few Alex, times. I don't think it's as easy as saying I'm European, Alex. No. You're not, to me, you know, at this point, you're sort of American, you go to Burning Man, you, you know, you have means, you're, you've, you're all contorted. I am contorted. Canadians are like 40% European. Yeah. 30%. 30%? Okay. The Quebecois yeah. are maybe 40. Yeah, well, definitely. But someone from Alberta think- is like not 30% European. They're 30% Texan. Yeah. That's interesting. I've heard that. Yeah. The thing that's a um, great nation. Yeah, it's a great Alberta? nation. Is that your good? Is that your good product, Troy? Alberta. No, I have a good product. Great I'll product. share it with you when we get to that segment. Okay, well, great. one thing I want to say is I wanted to take a moment, first of all, to thank Julia Alexander, who I don't know if we thanked Brian, who but did yeah. a little shout out for us. Likes the podcast. I also wanted to thank this young man, Johnny, who I spent some time with in Paris, who's an absolute next level search ninja, hugely enterprising young guy. Wait, who search ninja? Yeah, he's like an SEO guy, just oh. next level. Just um, I thought he was going to be very, your bartender at the Hemingway bar, John. Oh, no, that was Babyface, a different okay, guy. Sorry. Anyway, Johnny is a listener and a fan, and I, I wanted to shout out Johnny. So there we go. We can get to good product now. Yeah, let's do good product. I said at one point that I thought the perfect product 
was the soup dumpling. It's just so perfect. And I said it before, but so I'm not going to focus on that today. I don't know if you've ever had soup dumplings, but it's the experience of eating them is wonderful. And you put a little of that vinegar sauce on and, you know, there's, it's, they're just savory and delicious and a fun experience to eat. Huge fan, perfect product. But today I think I was reminded of this. I went for dim sum with my son to one of our favorite places called Dim Sum Go-Go, which you may or may not know if you ever spend time in New York, I'd recommend it. But the thing that I'm deeply enamored by is the turnip cake, the perfectly executed per- turnip cake that's so crispy on the outside and soft in the inside and has this kind of gooey thing that it's not super salty or savory or sweet. It's kind of right down the middle. You put hot sauce on it. Fuck, is it good? Turnip cakes. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's one of the best things to order. I've never had right. one. Oh, uh, turnip so cakes good. are great. So are chai yeah. pancakes, but turnip. It's maybe a branding issue in America because turnip doesn't doesn't sound kind of as appetizing. I think that Chilean sea bass used to be a Atlantic toothfish or something like that, and that got rebranded. Maybe turnip needs to be rebranded. I didn't know that Chile, Chilean sea, sea bass got rebranded. No wonder it's so yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it worked. No, no. What would you rebrand? Just it, if we were doing so, a so, so just catfish. Catfish so the Chilean sick. sea bass used to be called the Patagonian toothfish. Mm. Patagonian and it was rebranded sea bass and started just winning. Tilapia needs a rebrand too. A turnip, I'd call it... Like a white carrot souffle? Mm. Or uh, I don't have anything. I'm just like, I'm just exhausted from this week's mm. and daylight savings switch, which is great, by the way. I'm happy we get an extra hour sunlight. Yeah, and for the sunlight, I don't love the hour lost. But mm. Do you ever walk around and think that's a great product, Brian? Is that something that maybe you could you could do the segment? Yeah, I thought it was or? your thing. I mean, I, I, no. I have, you know. Have could you got anything waiting? Product. Yeah, give me no, a No, I don't have anything Brian. waiting. I mean, I was yeah. like in Philadelphia this weekend. There are no great products. Well, <laughs> that's not true. You make some good stuff. <laughs> no, that's not true. But it was a lot the of the Eagles. Downs, that's a great product. The band. Right, or how the about band? Alex? If you the, the band, if you they're from Philly. Okay. Are the Eagles from Philly? Where are the Eagles from? What do you they're mean? definitely yeah. not from Philly. Not the football team brand. Oh, the the band. No, yeah, not from Philadelphia. I don't think so. The only great Los, like, Los Angeles formed in Los Angeles in 1971. I mean, the greatest cultural exports of Philly outside of like Rocky are like Hall and Oates. Um, oh, that's a good product right there. Jesus. I think nice Aretha. One, I think Aretha mm. was born there. Patty LaBelle product. definitely came from good uh, one. Philly. Um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. The Hooters. Let's not forget the Hooters. Oh. We had the Queen City Kids in Regina. Big Were band. they like, did you have a band that was the regional band? Was that the, because the Hooters was like the regional brand, band that never really broke out from Philly. I think like, Joni Mitchell's from Moose Jaw. There's a place called Moose Jaw. Yeah, you never been there? No. Great place. Should I I go? Yeah. I think they have a uh, Four Seasons. I mean, Canada has a Four Seasons in Moose Jaw. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when you like, because I think Four Seasons is like one of those franchises. They just rent out the name. They don't operate the properties. Yeah, no. Moose Jaw doesn't look like it has Four Seasons. Do they have a Ritz? Uh, No, they think they have a Holiday Inn Express. Do you have anything to take us home, Troy? This was a a bummer of an episode, but what happened last week or anything happened last week that was maybe a funner note to end on in tech or anything you noticed outside of a good product? My take on media is that I feel so insanely satisfied with how much there is to read, watch, listen to, enjoy. It's just a funny industry because 
you're never different. You're never fully. There's always someone willing to make media tomorrow. Media changes because you got to make it every day. You got to make it fresh. There's always, you know, the cultural backdrop that means that there's a, a new group coming up or someone's underserved and there's always an opportunity to serve them and differentiate and come, come up with something different. It was interesting this week that, but at the same time, industrial structures always kind of turn to oligopoly at some point. I read, we can include in the show notes, but I read a really thoughtful, long, deconstruction of the media companies that dominate search. Did you come across that, Brian? No, I'd like to see that. So they clustered all of the kind of main groups or multi-brand owners. There's about, I think they grouped about six or seven and they included Meredith, Hearst, Future, smaller ones like Recurrent, Bustle, Condé, Penske, And so there was this whole group and then they analyzed how many clicks they get per month from search and what percentage of the market that is. And essentially what you see is that search is kind of in a way oligopolistic in that it's controlled by a handful of companies that dominate traffic coming off of Google. So despite the fact that digital media companies, there's no longer the lock-in that you had in times when newspapers or local monopolies or magazines had big rate bases that were hard to replicate or cable had the dial or the cable box. You didn't have that kind of structural resilience. But what you did have now is that the best kind of hackerish digital media companies grew up in this battlefield where you had shifting content types and monetization and distribution. But over a longer arc, a bunch of them managed to kind of solidify a position of being the main refers from Google, which is really where your money comes from right now. Except today, that is deteriorating. The optimist in me finds this to be a very, very interesting time because I, I you know, I grew up in, you know, at a time and that's one of the main things I focused on at Hearst was building our sort of resiliency as a company that that did extremely well in the search game. Mm-hmm. But now everybody's sort of scratching their head wondering where, what the next model is, where's the next kind of point of resiliency for any kind of smaller, large media company. And it feels like a time of just kind of wild invention. It's just, it's just a really interesting time. You can either look at it like, oh my God, what role does media play when you know everybody has a voice and you're crowded out by influencers and individuals and creators and all that? Or you can say, oh my God, how can I find new formats in this? How can I build a company in this? It's just a super interesting time. So then you see examples like, and I admire this, I shared it with the group last night, Alex played with it. You know, obviously BuzzFeed has jumped on the AI bandwagon and they built a, did you play this? How to be an influencer or the influencer game, AI game? I didn't play it yet. Alex can review it. I think the very first example of, or one of the first few examples of people trying to to use chat to create an engaging media experience. Although maybe mm-hmm. I think this one's a bit of a fail, right, Alex? Well, it's not fun, which is crime, really. And also it feels surprisingly kind of constrained for something that, that's meant to be based on AI. It's trying to act so self-aware because you're essentially simulating being a social media influencer, influencer via a chatbot that's asking you questions and it's changing the number of people that you follow. It feels like a very kind of convoluted concept. But more stuff is going to come out like this, at least they're trying. My worry is that these types of things really, we get overloaded with these things, which are like the BuzzFeed, like which friend friend's character are you, but just with like slightly more dimension to it. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. interesting. It was I think great. it's like a story of like why there's, there's little durability and competitive advantage in publishing. The reason SEO, what the example you're talking about, it's always 
been so powerful is that it's one of the few durable competitive advantages. Now even that is being chipped away. This AI mm-hmm. stuff you're talking about, again, I didn't experience it yet. It doesn't sound like it'll be a durable competitive advantage. And so you're always going to be like scrambling for like the next thing. Obviously in analog media, you had a lot of durable competitive advantages. I don't know what they are mm-hmm. now. No, I mean, that's the, one of the reasons to also be optimistic is that these oligopolies might shift now with search shifting. And if Google's stranglehold changes, then all of these companies go with it. It's cool to see that innovation. I miss a lot of it because I don't hang out on YouTube, but talk show formats that my kid watches on YouTube are more between two ferns than they are Kimmel. Yeah. You know, they're like, they're really weird. I, I can recommend a podcast that is actually a, a YouTube show. And I also can recommend a topic for one of our next episodes. And it's called Trillionaire Mindset. And it's these two dudes talking about finance, but it's about 10% finance and 90% comedy show. They shoot it as a, as a YouTube show that then goes out to a podcast, which got me thinking like, do you know, like running a podcast, you keep being advised that the fastest growing part of podcasting is video podcasts. And I always wonder what a video podcast is. Isn't a video podcast just a show? And isn't podcast just an audio distribution medium? And those terms are getting all jumbled up. And I thought maybe we can talk about it one of these weeks. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I mean, should Spotify. Probably, it would have been the good one. For Spotify came out. I mean, it's what new. we should be doing yeah. if we weren't so Spotify. lazy. We should be putting this show on YouTube. Do we do that? Well, I don't think we do. We don't. Yeah. We don't. We don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're already... We definitely have we, faces we get, for YouTube. We definitely are just, just getting the things things right doing it audio. And then we'll figure out YouTube. Yeah, the Spotify thing, I think, is really important. And then what is a podcast and, and what does a format even mean anymore would be a great topic. Yeah. That's not fucking banking. Because I think with the, the Spotify is forcing this thing to happen, and I just wonder whether it's a real consumer demand or whether it's a platform that needs to find better ways to monetize and video. Or, or it's better. just a thing that tech companies do, which is whenever something's successful, yeah. they become obsessed with it. Bankers don't like it when you generically call them bankers, I found out. Really? <laughs> yeah. I went to lunch with a bunch of people that I called bankers all the time, and I referred to them as bankers in my newsletter, and they're like, dude, we're not bankers. What I work they? in private equity. <laughs> they're bankers. He's an investment banker. He's a hedge fund person. He works in private, or she works in private equity. Everyone likes to like, it's not a bailout, it's a backstop. Or it's not a newsletter, it's a it's a blog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not a newsletter, it's a blog, you're a podcaster, don't call me the media. Yeah, everyone hates you it. Know? It's like in Breakfast yeah. Club where like Bender was saying to Emilio Estevez characters, oh, you're a wrestler, so you wear tights. And he's like, no, I wear the proper you know, wrestling attire. He's like, right, tights. Yeah. Bankers wow. need to accept their bankers. It's okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Okay. All well, right. thank you for pushing us on this, Brian. I thought it was a good, good <laughs> we'll episode. We'll see how it turns out. <sighs> I'm going to get a lot of hatred from the Chamber of Commerce because I didn't show enough fealty to the small business owner. I'm smaller yeah. than them, so whatever. There's always somebody smaller. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>